This is the second episode in a two-part series. Please listen to Gregory Montgomery, Part 1, before listening to Part 2. Oh, and just one note. New information came in hours before we began recording this episode, and long after we recorded Episode 1. That information has been incorporated in the following story. This is the fall line. I can't remember the police or the ambulance being there. I, my mm-hmm. mind just went blank. I can't remember none of it. I don't know. I don't know. I was just screaming. Do you remember who told your mom? They were all there. Uh, and of, of all the things, I think that was, for me, the most heart-wrenching thing. You... you Believe me, you never want to go to your mother and say that uh, when your siblings has been killed, it's been murdered. And uh, so that was the toughest time for me. And the thing about it, my mother's, we were going to tear her about oh, Greg yes. deceased. She says, y'all don't have to tell me, he's already visited me. She already knew. He had come to her. But I think a month before that, she had this dream that she was at a funeral. Last episode, we told you about a particular neighborhood in Atlanta, an area called Thomasville Heights. Before the public housing complex called Thomasville Heights Apartments was demolished, it was a frequent site of drug-related crime in Atlanta. Though the murders and robberies that happened there weren't a major focus of the evening news. The 300-odd units in the complex housed young families, the elderly, and everyone in between, Atlantans in need of affordable housing. Built on surplus federal land at the meeting line of Fulton and DeKalb counties, the complex was in the city enough to be patrolled by the Atlanta Police Department. The area isn't very walkable, not with all the freight trucks trundling down Moreland Avenue, which is also known as State Route 42. The now-demolished apartment complex is where Gregory Montgomery, 23 years old and from the in-town neighborhood of Kirkwood, was shot in the back. It was Friday, November 20th, 1987, late in the night, a holiday weekend meant for family. Gregory had some part in a drug deal that night. The precise role he played is still unclear, or so our recent research has revealed. The family friend who was with him, a man we're calling Marcus, told the family one version of events, that he wanted to buy crack but didn't have enough money. Gregory offered to drive him over to Thomasville Heights Apartments to buy it, lack of money nonwithstanding. Gregory figured that he could work it out. As Dolores, Gregory's sister, told us, he was bold, the kind of young man who would do things on a dare or even take chances. Gregory doesn't seem to have had any strong connections in the Thomasville area. According to his family and his court records, he hadn't been prosecuted for drug-related activity. Theft and forgery, yes. Drugs, no. 
it would be unlikely that he had any strong personal connections among those selling and buying drugs in or around the apartments, though he certainly could have known a few people. To his family, it seemed more likely that he'd gone along for the thrill of it, something to do, a boundary to push on a Friday night. But that November also seemed to be a bit of a turning point for Gregory. Just a few days before, he'd had a long talk with his older brother, James, about the direction of his life. See, earlier that year, Gregory had done several months in county lockup for those forgery charges. At 23, he had several young children, but not a clear plan, and James was worried for him. I had spoken with him uh, at my mother's house and told him that he needed to change his ways uh, and that it was impacting his children. So we had a a very heart-wrenching man-to-man talk. And uh, once once he was murdered... I went back to the house because my mother was very ill at that time and she was staying with one of my sisters. I uh, went back to the house and to my amazement, the house had been cleaned, the yard had been cut and everything and I was sort of surprised. And I think that he had uh, done that uh, the day before he was murdered because I had just spoken with him, uh, I think two days before he, he was murdered. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. You know, I could pretend that uh, when I spoke with him, I talked man to man. No, but we had some tears together on that day. Do you remember anything that he said on that day that stuck with you? He was a guy that sort of, you know, uh, that would probably, uh, you know, you've heard guys who would who would not, not verbose, but they would sort of say, yeah, man, I think I need to do that. And that's what he said. And I knew he wasn't just pulling my leg when, uh, in fact, he uh, did. There were signs that he was trying to do something better. Though it seemed like a change might be on the horizon for Greg, his family wasn't surprised to hear that he might have driven with a friend on a late night trip involving more than a little danger. That became part of the family's account the story they've told for more than 30 years. But what we found in Gregory's police file, which the podcast received via FOIA request, was another matter. When it came to what happened that night, it seems the police got a different story entirely. Other than a pseudonym assigned to Gregory's friend and the redaction of a specific home address, the following is directly quoted from the Atlanta Police Department's report found in Gregory Montgomery's file. On 11-2087, at approximately 02.30 hours, I received a signal 5048 at Douglas Street Southeast in the city of Atlanta. When I arrived on the scene, I found the body of Gregory Montgomery laying in the back seat of a gray Chevrolet Spectrum. Marcus Johnson stated that the car belonged to him. He said that on this date, Gregory Montgomery, who was a friend, called him and asked him to pick him up in the Thomasville Heights apartment complex. He said that he was driving through the apartments when he was flagged down by Montgomery. Montgomery was excited and told Johnson to get in the passenger seat, and he got behind the wheel and drove off. As he was driving off, someone shot at the car several times, and Montgomery was hit and slumped over in the driver's seat. Johnson stated that he then drove the car from the passenger side back to his home and called police, and he had been driving it from the passenger side just prior to my arrival on the scene. 
I looked into the car from the passenger side and saw in plain view on the floorboard of the passenger side of the vehicle a clear plastic Ziploc bag of white powder that appeared to be cocaine. I then looked in the ashtray of the vehicle and observed a hand-rolled cigarette that contained suspected marijuana. Marcus Johnson was arrested and charged with possession. The evidence was taken to the state crime lab for identification and analysis. Later, in another report, there's an interview from Marcus's older brother, who Will called Don. He tended to speak for Marcus in official matters, and this was no exception. He was also a friend of the Montgomery family. In fact, it had been he who had told the Montgomerys the story of what had happened that night. That Marcus planned on buying drugs, that Greg assured him that he could underpay, and that they drove over together. But his police interviews, including the following question and answer series, are markedly different. In the following segment, two voice actors will read the actual report. And again, the only change is the addition of a pseudonym for the witness. Was Greg involved in drugs? Before he went to jail, he just got out. He was in for six or eight months. He was selling drugs and ripping folks off and cashing checks, and that's why he went to jail. They charged with first-degree forgery. Was Greg known to rip off drug dealers? He was not necessarily known for going to these people's homes, but he did take the drugs from their hands and run. And tonight, I don't know what happened, but my brother told me that when he got to Thomasville Heights, Greg ran up to the car and told Marks to move over and hurry up. The last time, just before he went to jail, the guys from Kirkwood came up to his van and knocked out the windows in his van because he had taken about $50 worth of drugs and not paid for them. And he was known to take people's money by promising them something for the money and not coming through in the promise. Gregory's arrest record doesn't reflect this version of his life. We have no evidence of him robbing drug dealers or engaging in ongoing feuds. There are no drug-related crimes on his record, at least in what we've been able to access. As we said, he did do a short stint for forgery, but that seems to be the only part of Don's story that is verifiable. From what Greg's family has told us, he wasn't normally involved in drug-related activities. Admittedly, their knowledge on that is limited. The two siblings we interviewed are much older and had families and careers of their own when Greg was a young man. But his record and the general recorded events support their version. The simplest answer to this problem is that, knowing that his brother Marcus was facing jail time, Don decided to put the blame on Greg. After all, Gregory had died and couldn't be hurt, not in a prosecutorial sense, by the allegations. But maybe the creation of the situation, drug dealer versus drug dealer, might offer a narrative less interesting to the media. The case certainly received little coverage. We can't guess as to how law enforcement viewed Gregory, and our sources tell us that closing a case, that is, clearing a case, is a priority, no matter where that case happened or to whom. And that's not altruism. It's about the percentage of closure rates versus open cases, and how an officer or detective's rate is calculated by the department. The more resolution, or a closure, the better. According to what the family understood at the outset of our research, Greg's case had never been adjudicated. Based on what we found out just this month, that's not actually true. It seems the Montgomerys have been waiting for answers that will literally never come, because a closed case isn't pursued. We can walk you through that, but first you need to know about the 18-year-old who the police named as a suspect, the man alleged to be Greg's killer. Although the suspect's name was printed in the paper, the police report mostly refers to him by his nickname, Wolf. In this episode, we'll do the same. 
Through his arrest and conviction records, we can track him through the years, what's happened to him and who he's happened to. Based on the information in Greg's file, Wolf was a low-level dealer who sold in Thomasville Heights. He was identified soon after the shooting, both by Marcus, Greg's friend, and by other witnesses. It was known that the Atlanta Police Department was looking for him. According to the police report, multiple tips and sightings came in, especially after the AJC article named him as a suspect. One such tip came in February of 1998, nearly three months after Greg was murdered. APD received a call from a 15-year-old girl who lived in Thomasville Heights. She reported that she had just seen Wolf enter an apartment in the complex. She identified Wolf, who was an adult, as her ex-boyfriend. She described him as about five foot six, slim, and that she'd last seen him wearing a blue jacket. She didn't want to give the officer her name. Wolf had threatened her in the past, but her physical description also matched APD's notes, and she said that Wolf had a gun. The reporting officer noted that there was a warrant out for Wolf, so he contacted the Zone 3 dispatch. They handled reports for Thomasville Heights. It's worth noting here that several detectives and officers worked this case. The primary detective, now retired D.E. Jensen, wanted dispatch to alert officers that Wolf was armed. When Zone 3 officers arrived in Thomasville Heights, they entered an apartment, the same one where Wolf had been seen, and then reported back to Jensen. Jensen wrote, quote, They stated they found a house full of stolen goods and that, quote, they had one suspect in custody. That suspect wasn't carrying ID, so they couldn't positively identify him as Wolf. The next-door neighbors who were questioned told officers that Wolf often hung out at a nearby motel just a little northwest of Thomasville Heights. It's not directly stated, but one can infer the neighbors could not or would not offer a positive ID. There's another report in the file from the night Greg died, November 20th, 1987. It's from the Thomasville Heights apartment complex where Greg was shot. This incident, though, occurred more than an hour before Greg died, and it was the Zone 3 police who were alerted. The report, which comes from APD Zone 3 Precinct, details a drug deal observed by a pair of officers. They chased the subject, a young black male, maybe 5'8", and dressed in a blue windbreaker, but they weren't able to make an arrest. They recovered a bag of, quote, seven hits of cocaine and a three fifty seven Magnum. It's not specified whether that male was Wolf or whether APD thought he might be. The blue jacket, mentioned by both the 15-year-old and the Zone 3 officers, may be the only link. But 30 years later, the report remains in Greg's file, so it's a fair guess. Another report from Thomasville Heights, this time in relation to Greg's death, is in the file. There was a witness, one besides Gregory's friend Marcus, who spoke with APD. Apparently, this witness did not live in the complex. Based on a few facts listed, like the name of his business, it seems as though he may have been there in an official capacity, though 2.30 a.m. would be late for that. Either way, the witness knew Wolf and had known him for about five years. Anne gave a succinct description of the crime. He'd seen a silver car and then five men running after it. Four of those men had guns. He identified one as Wolf. The witness observed that the person in the passenger side of the car was slumped over. And you'll recall that when Marcus, Greg's friend, spoke to police, he told them that Greg had been driving. 
and that after Greg was shot, he'd had to steer the car all the way back to Kirkwood from the passenger side. But the witness's version backs up what the family was told, both by Marcus and by his brother Don. The witness told APD that he heard Wolf say, quote, I got the mother He told authorities that shooting was a regular occurrence in the context of local drug deals and that Wolf was carrying a silver 38. The witness didn't see the shots fired, just the car coming around the corner with a passenger slumped over and five men chasing after. But he heard the shots. When DeKalb County police were called to Gregory's house after the murder, the responding officer reported several bullet holes in the back of the silver car they'd driven, a Chevy Spectrum. Gregory's police file ends with an arrest, but not Wolf's. It was Greg's friend Marcus who went before a judge on December 3, 1987. He first appeared in Atlanta Municipal Court and was then bonded over to DeKalb County Superior Court. When we were finished reviewing the file, which, to the best of our knowledge, we received in full, we were left without answers. There's no record of an arrest relating to Gregory's case on Wolf's record. In fact, the first arrest we can access in the Fulton system is from 1989, when he was charged with obstruction, criminal trespass, aggravated assault, and battery. Over the last three decades, he's been charged in multiple counties. In at least three instances, he was booked and arraigned under an alias. And it was Carla, Greg's niece, who actually caught that detail. Based on the data we can find, Fulton County jail records, court records from Atlanta Municipal Court and Fulton Superior Court, and the Department of Corrections, Wolf has been arrested many times. He's been charged with stalking, domestic violence, speeding, obstruction, assault. His first prison sentence began in 1992, with separate sentences following in the late 90s and served concurrently. According to the public portals we can access, he's never been tried for murder. As of a 2016 court document, Wolf had no fixed address. A motion was filed to list a relative's address, noting Wolf as, quote, transient. He doesn't come up in address or phone searches either. He still has plenty of family in and around Atlanta, many in the same southeast corridor where, in 1987, he was accused of shooting a man. As we said, he's been arrested many times since then, but Gregory's case is never mentioned in the public court documents. No one is sure why that is, at least not on the citizen side of things. The family hasn't received any updates for a number of years. When we interviewed James Montgomery this fall, he talked to us about the information he's received on Gregory's case. So at that time, my thinking was, oh, that's his chief suspect and things are going to happen. And um, it, ju- it just didn't happen. Did they tell you his name when they told you they had a chief suspect? Oh, yes, they told me his name. And did y'all recognize his name? Did you know him at all? Did not know anything mm-hmm. about him at all. When you were told they had a suspect, and I'm sure some of your family saw the name in the paper, did you expect that some resolution was coming? Yes. But it did. And I was a little perturbed at that. Uh, But I think I, well, when I think about it, I believed in the system uh, a little bit more the system uh, believed in itself. Were you frequently told, like, oh, it's in process, it's going to happen, it's maybe coming up soon? Or... The, the answer that I got was that uh, uh, 
And I, I guess they understood what I was looking for. Um, they would say that uh, we're still working with it. We're not, we've not been able to convict him and that kind of thing. But I thought that they were, quote, working on it during that time. And that's why I think I was a little bit too trustful. One of the things that happened with me, and I, and I can, I would think it happens to other people also, is that you don't want to be completely consumed. You know, the stuff you see on television where somebody says, I'm going to do this and finish this and so on and get this done. Um, uh, especially if you're dealing with distances and all this sort of stuff. Uh, initially, I was starting to become consumed by the thing. You understand what I'm getting at? And you say, well, you got a family you still got to take care of, and you got this, that, and the other. Um, so you have to sort of, in order to maintain your own sanity, and, and even less than that, to maintain living and in and, and your life. and, and uh, Because you have to give some time to your family, too. You can't just allow yourself to be just consumed. And I, I would say that I, I, I had some practice at not being consumed because uh come from a situation where our father left at a given point. And I think from that I learned that I can't just sit there and just dwell, 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 dwell on something uh, when uh, uh, there's nothing I can do about it except lose my mind. As mentioned earlier in the episode, we placed a FOIA request for Greg's file. It took a while to get it because it had to be pulled from the off-site archives, which is usually a sign that a case is closed. At the time, though, that didn't strike us as particularly odd. APD is a huge organization and can't possibly keep all files on hand. But in conjunction with the lack of information concerning an arrest, we began to think that perhaps some circumstances could have led to the case being mistakenly filed as closed. Greg's friend Marcus had been arrested, and those materials, the arrest record, and the court date were included at the end of the file. Maybe someone took it for wolves. We had plenty of guesses like that, but no proof to support any of them. Everything contained in Greg's file was perfectly normal and by-the-book police work. It just ends with Marcus's court documents, as if that was some final action in the case. It's worth noting, by the way, that a few of the pages in the file are out of order. In the file, the last dated material is from February of 1988, when the anonymous 15-year-old called in to report a sighting of Wolf. But that was at the beginning of the file, along with some immediate reports on Greg's death. It actually appeared before Marcus and Don's interviews. And at the end of the file, as we said, was Marcus's arrest. It should be much further back in the file, as it was dated 12-4-1987. Could it be as simple as a piece of paper moved to the wrong place in a file and then taken as an arrest made in the case? Atlanta Police Department has always been very receptive to us, often willing to have us come in and sit down and go through files, and responsive to our calls and emails, even though they handle a large number of FOIA requests each year. So, we went to APD with our questions, and they spent several months looking into the case for us. Over email, they told us that they had some initial records that indicated an arrest. In response, we told them that that wasn't reflected in the file we received, 
or in the online portals. They didn't have more information immediately at hand, and none of us, including APD, were sure why an arrest, if it had happened, hadn't made it into the digital records. In 1987, Atlanta Police Department had a record-keeping system that would be unimaginable today. Stacks of carefully arranged books and folders, and everything delivered by hand. We'd first wondered if the arrest warrant could have gotten lost somewhere in that shuffle, with thousands of pieces of paper going back and forth across downtown. It could happen. But it didn't happen. There is a piece of paper, more than one. Just days before this recording, the Public Information Office tracked them down from one of the many departmental archives. Along with the warrant dated November 20th, 1987, we received one other document, an arrest report. It turns out that Wolf was indeed arrested on February 2nd, 1989. The arrest record states that he was charged with the murder of Gregory Montgomery and that he received another charge, obstruction of an officer, at the time of his arrest. That specific arrest is not in the digital system, and we don't know why. However, we found an obstruction charge from 1989, dated March, not February. It's an online system designed long after the 1980s, so there could be a fair number of missing arrests there. The APD Public Information Office read that arrest record to us over the phone and then sent over paper copies, and it's all as it should be. The case, as originally reported, isn't in the online records either. There are two possible courts where a wolf could have been taken. Atlanta Municipal or Fulton County Superior. Based on the time recorded on the arrest record, it's most likely that he would have appeared at the former. When we went through all the digital records for Atlanta Municipal Court's February 1989 docket, Wolf was not listed, either by his real name or his alias. There were some cases labeled as unknown, comma, officer and city of Atlanta, but they had no information inside that would enable us to match the case to Wolf. We also searched based on the original case date of November of 1987, based on arresting officer, officer in charge of the case, Wolf's various names, nothing came up. We searched by charge, by case number, by complaint number, nothing. When Carla Montgomery called the court, she was told to fill out a form in order to receive a case disposition. As of the recording of this episode, Carla is still waiting for the response to her query. Although, as a lawyer, she has some ideas about what might have happened. If we gain that information, we'll be sure to update you in a future episode. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. The Montgomery family has an answer now, but not the one they set out to find. Closure is not a word that we like to use, and it wouldn't be applicable here, even if that disposition turns up. When we spoke to Carla about the new information, she had more questions. 
Why wasn't he prosecuted? Did he plead to a lesser charge? Why didn't APD continue the investigation? What about Wolf's friends who were seen with him that night? Were they identified or interviewed or prosecuted? All the family can do now is wait, hoping that piece of paper is found. And they've gotten good at waiting. They've had plenty to focus on. Grad school, law school, weddings, births, deaths. Even James Montgomery finding a sister they'd never met in Germany through his genealogical research. When we went on our drive-along interview, he was planning a trip to Europe so his family could meet her. He said he and his wife, Lynette, would make sure to visit Paris because they love the city. In the meantime, the Montgomery family has recently lost another loved one to violence in Atlanta. During the writing of this episode, a dear cousin of Carla and James, Jesse Turner III, was shot at a local DeKalb County gas station. He'd simply pulled in to fuel up. A beloved father and grandfather, the news articles surrounding his death have focused on the hole he will leave in the Montgomery family, another empty space at the holiday table. For families, the short term is hard, but maybe the long term is harder. Imagining all the things a loved one would have done, the person they would have become, how they might have shaped those around them. When Gregory died, he was already a father. His children were very young, some too young to have any memories of him at all. When we spoke to James Montgomery, we discussed the effect that Greg's murder had on his children. That's something that we talked about a little bit before. Um, the fact that he was taken from those kids mm -hmm. um, and the legacy of the kids finding out what happened to their father in his life and how... Um, media responded and how the police responded to the loss of their father's life. Do you feel like it has left a legacy for them and shaped well, their lives? For the ones that I, that I knew of, I'd spoken with them and there, there was a degree of, of uh, sadness, really, uh, because I had one of them ask me, why did they kill my father? Uh, that's sort of heart-wrenching uh, when you hear a child ask that question. Uh, so uh, the ones that we knew of, they were, uh, they loved them. And they, uh, as a result, uh, were left uh, wondering what had happened and, and so on and so forth. And I, 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 I get, the, get the feeling that if he had survived, that he would have been a much better father. We haven't spent much time on Gregory as a father and what that role meant to him. To learn more, it makes the most sense to speak to his children. Carla is close with a number of her cousins, and she arranged for us to speak with Greg's son, who was four years old when his father died. Everyone tells us that they had a particularly close bond. Just a note, now an adult, that son prefers that, on this recording, we refer to him by his professional name, Bino. More specifically, he's a performing artist who goes by Notorious Bino, and he's recorded with many Atlanta-based rappers, including 21 Savage. We interviewed Bino in his loft-style condo on a Sunday afternoon in September. It was in the 90s that day in Atlanta, so you might hear the building's air system echoing in the background of the conversation. I don't remember going to a funeral. That's something I didn't remember. I do remember, like, 
going to his grave site um, as I got a little older with my mom. Um, that's about all with that. Yeah, over the years, like how have you and your mom talked about it? Does she talk about memories of your dad? She talked about him with his jerry curl, say so he had a jerry curl at one <laughs> point in time. Um, and like he loved his motorcycle. I, I think one time uh, uh, him and my mom got to arguing and my uncle had done messed up his bike. <laughs> I think they like put his bike in the creek and he had like a fit or something like that. Uh, <laughs> I remember that story, uh, but um. Which uncle was that? Uh, my uncle Gary, my um, mom's brother. That's funny. Yeah, I can remember her telling me that all the time. And she was like, he was a real cool dude, like real popular, like um, had a lot of friends, a lot of fancy clothes and cars and stuff like that. He was a pretty boy. I guess that's why I get a little bit of that, that from. <laughs> Yes, do people tell you that you remind Yeah, you? a lot. Like, everybody does. Yeah. That's what and it, it kind of works out like that anyway, because, like, out of all the kids, everybody, they may not keep up with every with, with each other, but they all contact me. So I'm, like, the go-to person, child, or whatever. Like, yeah, everybody keep in contact with me. They may not see each other or talk to each other, but they all call me. Do you think that... Losing your father at a young age has affected the way you father now. Um, I think so because I I, I know how it feels to be without a father, and then like you know your mama having like boyfriend. Well, I only remember two other people besides my dad. Um, like and they not really your father, so they not gonna really give you like the ultimate fatherly love. You feel me? So I remember how that being like in her like without them. She's just struggling to raise me and my sister, but she did a pretty good job. Like, I give it to her. She's a strong lady. Like, um, I think me growing up without a father led me to different things. Like, I went to juvenile and, you know, I was in and out of jail and stuff like that at a young age, which I think the reason why I'm so cool and calm now is because I went through that already. You feel me? But I think if I had my dad, you know, things would have been totally different. You know, he could have taught me things that I, I, I had to learn on my own. So it, it affected me a lot, you know. And then to know that, like, I was his guy, you feel me? So I, I would want to know, like, how does it feel, like, being older and, like, bonding with your father, like, what, what we would have, have done together and stuff like that and what else he, what he could have taught me or whatnot. You feel me? Like, I probably wouldn't have made the mistakes that I made because he was already out there, so I'm pretty sure he wouldn't have wanted me to be out there. I wouldn't want to leave my kids so I don't do things or to put myself in positions like that anymore. My kids are everything to me, so, and they love me to death. <laughs> so, uh, that's probably, uh, I think that probably made me like to be the, a great father that I am today, like not having one, like, cause I'm real hands on. Pick my son up every day from school. Sometimes I take him, but I pick him up every day, um, you know. My daughter, uh, I just bought her iPhone. She called me, FaceTime me every day. We got a perfect bond. It sounds like also you're more aware of your safety because you want to make sure you're there. Yeah, and that's the thing, like, with everybody, 
like, I guess, like, I'm the only child that probably, like, had all the trouble and stuff like that. So, that they said I was going, like, into the same footsteps or whatnot. You feel me? So, like, that's what everybody seen, like, me being, like, a troubled child, which I was. Uh, like, and, and I was, like, for my age group, like, I was always the, like, ringleader or something like that. You feel me? Everybody want to follow me. Even though, even though I was the smallest, but I was the, the leader. Everybody want to follow me. So I, everybody seen that in me, my dad, like I was going in the wrong path and stuff like that. So luckily I straightened up. I didn't follow too deep into it, you know? I mean, hmm. I, I, I think I came out pretty good. I saved myself. <laughs> Over 200 years ago, in Terminus, Ransom Montgomery saved passengers on a burning train, and the city of Atlanta saw fit to grant him his personhood, his freedom from slavery and servitude, in return. What kind of future did he imagine for his children, and his children's children, in a city that would name a street for him, but would leave so many of his descendants in limbo, wondering how, when, resolution might come? Each season passing, a city reimagining itself street by street, brick by brick, sometimes burying stories underneath its progress, maybe making it harder to figure out if we're at the end or if we simply circled around back to where we started. A final note. The suspect discussed here has not, as far as we know, been convicted of crimes regarding Gregory Montgomery's death and should be presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. We would like to thank the Montgomery family for contacting us about Gregory's case. It was an absolute privilege to work with them. Thanks especially to Carla, whose professional, investigative, and research skills played a major part in the creation of these episodes. Special thanks also go out to a concerned citizen, the host of Swindled, for lending his voice to this episode. If you haven't listened to Swindled, you're missing out on the best white-collar crime podcast out there. So please, check it out. We'd also like to thank our composer, RJR, and friend of the show, Leonard Gaucher, for reading the second police report. Finally, thanks to all the listeners who have taken the time out to support our sponsors, leave us reviews, or support our show directly on Patreon or PayPal. We could not do it without you. If you enjoy our show, using the promo codes with our sponsors can make a huge difference. A very special thanks goes out to Angie Dodd. The Fall Line is created by Laura Norton and Brooke Hargrove and is produced and mastered by Maura Curry. Our research assistants are Haley Gray, Kim Fritz, Brooke Floyd, and Lexi Newhouse. Content advisors are Brandy C. Williams, Vic Kennedy, and Liv Fallon. Theme music is by RJR. Find our merch in the Exactly Right Podswag store. A portion of our proceeds are donated to support the work of the DNA Doe Project. Our show will be back in February, when we begin very regular releases, both on our main feed and on Stitcher Premium, where we'll post ad-free versions of our regular episodes and full-length premium episodes. We'll never put unsolved cases behind a permanent paywall. They'll be out eventually on the main feed, but Premium will give you a chance to binge mini-seasons and specials while you wait for our new episodes to drop. So, we'll be back with a season on Doe Cases in February, and in March, a season we're calling Carolina Girls, covering the missing and murdered of both states. 
We hope you'll join us then.